Welcome to Songbook, the White Rabbit podcast about wonderful books about music. I'm Jude Rogers, journalist, broadcaster and author of White Rabbit title, The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives. Today's guest is someone whose curiosity and cleverness I first encountered when I read her classical music criticism for The Guardian. And in recent years, her soothing Scottish tones on the radio have made me dig deep into new sounds. She's the author of a brilliant new book published by Faber called Sound Within Sound, opening our ears to the 20th century, in which she spotlights some of the most exciting artists from around the world who have worked in the peripheries of classical, experimental and electronic music in the last hundred years. Our guest joins us today after presenting the Radio 3 Breakfast Show and she's got a young baby, so I'm incredibly grateful for her taking the time out. I'm delighted to bring into the songbook fold the wonderful Kate Mollison. How are you, Kate? Oh, dude, I am so made up after that introduction. Honestly, you've <laughs> a grin on my face. Thank you so much for that. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, so tell us where you are and what you've been up to today, apart from oh, well. uh, presenting a Radio Free Breakfast. <laughs> I am at home in Edinburgh, uh, in the old town of Edinburgh. And yeah, I, I've been up for quite a few hours um, because, I, uh, because I have been presenting the breakfast show, as you said. Um, so it happens to be the solstice today when we're speaking. So um, the dawn was at something like 4.23 or even earlier. Uh, so by the time I, I was heading to the studio at 6, um, you know, it felt like midday, basically. It's very <laughs> nice to be doing breakfast at this time of year, uh, midwinter, a bit more tricky. But, yes, you know, I bet. I, I, bet. Always, I always wake up by the end of the show. <laughs> but you're used to getting up early at the moment anyway. With yeah, the well, exactly. There we yeah. Go. Um, well, congratulations on your book. Um, would you say in your preface you wrote out of love and anger? Why did you write it out of love and uh, anger, if you can tell our listeners? Oh, well, um, so the love, I think, probably will hopefully come through in this conversation. The love is is to do with, with really my first loves of music, um, you know, the, the, the music that really spoke to me when I was as young as my six-month-old daughter is now, you know, just just the, the sounds that moved me um, for some reason. It was classical music. My parents listened to all sorts of music, but I just got sort of obsessed with with the classical cassettes in their cassette collection. And, um, you know, what I was hearing on Radio 3, funnily enough. And uh, and and this was this was a music that just that just blew my mind and that I wanted to play. But I loved hearing the stories about. So I would learn about the composers and um and I got more and more intrigued by finding out more about other composers. And then it sort of started to strike me that there, there were there were kind of people that I, that I wasn't reading about, that wasn't being told about in my in my history books of uh, classical music and, and the courses I was studying at university and the festivals I was going to and the concert programs I was opening up. Um, something seemed to be very similar about all the composers and that thing seemed to be that they were all white and they were all men. And, um, you know, some of them definitely were, a lot of them were, but I, I got a bit more curious about whether other people were also writing music and obviously that, that they were. Um, and so the anger started to creep in and I started to wonder why these other people were being left out if they also were making music. And then, of course, you know, I sought out their music and, and hey, it's really good and it's really exciting. And in some cases, it's had to be a lot more adventurous. I don't want to say more, actually. I might take that back because value judgments are tricky. But, you know, very extremely adventurous, brave, dauntless music because it had to be, because it had to, you know, they had to dare in order to write. So, so yeah, the love and the anger sort of go together. It's a, I, I feel like an evangelist standing up for the music that I love, saying classical music matters, it's important, it's, it's essential, it's daring, it's life-changing. But in order for it to remain that, 
it has to be inclusive. It has to uh, be honest. It cannot close the door behind it and, and stay in this safe little uh, padded room. You know, that's that's never been what classical music has been about. And, and I suppose that's you know, that's where the passion comes in, because I, I care about the longevity of this music. And I, and I think in order to survive, it needs to open up those doors wide. Definitely. And it's um, it's new music a lot of the time. You know, some of the composers you talk about, there's mm. Julian Carrillo, who is obsessed with um, microtones <laughs> and yeah. these incredible things. Um, there was a, a Filipino composer in your book I loved who um, had a composition involving um, thousands of cars blasting out different parts while the cribs around <laughs> yeah. the motorways. I'm not going to give away any more, but there's, there's loads of amazing stories that will resonate for people who are maybe fans of bands like Craftwork or can, um, a lot. There's an amazing Ethiopian composer. You know, lots of. If you're interested in the kind of more way out edges of Radio Three's output, you will love this book. Um, now, you said that music, it, music provided solace to you. How has it been doing so? You know, of late. You know, um, you know, we're sort of coming out slowly of the pandemic. You know, you're um, you're in early parenthood. How has music um, comforted you at this point? Oh, that's a huge question. And it's interesting. I wonder, you know, you know, my temptation is to turn the question back on you because I know you also work <laughs> in music. And it's a it's a funny thing, uh, having a relationship with music that is also your, your professional life. But joyously, it's never stopped being my passion. And um, I suppose that that joy of discovery, that joy of the new, um, I, you know, I'm so lucky to, to know even some of the composers working in this country at the moment, uh, composers like Cassandra Miller, absolutely stunning uh, Canadian composer um, who lives in London. She writes music that is so tender and um, uh, brave. There's that word again, and um, and soft and 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 truthful. She's got got really into this thing of um, singing, putting headphones on, listening to maybe a traditional song or, or, or fiddle tune, and sort of allowing herself to sing along to it. She's not a singer, but there's something so vulnerable in the act of doing that. Oh, I've been wow. listening to, yeah, absolutely beautiful works. And I've been listening to her music a lot. I suppose, why is it giving me solace? That that permission to be vulnerable, mm. to be loose around the edges, um, to make sounds that are really beautiful, unashamedly beautiful, but also um, rough and messy. And, you know, there's something just so true to life about that. Um, so yeah, I'd really recommend to anybody listening, uh, 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 checking out Cassandra Miller just for the, the stuff of real life and honesty, but also that sort of, um, I think I've used this word lion hearted about her music before, you know, a real, a real sort of striving for, for beauty and, uh, optimism, I guess. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. reading about Eliane Radig in your book, you know, she is somebody who I've been listening to, um, the Trilogy de la Moor of Eliane Radigue, which I found out about through um, Richard Norris, the DJ, who I interview in my book. And I've just been on these amazing countryside walks where they're, they're these very low drums that build very slowly and then change and shift almost imperceptibly. And then at some points I'm going, is that a cow I can hear me in the distance? <laughs> is it this record? I don't know. <laughs> but you know, I think, I, would, I think she would approve. Yeah, allowing yourself to just experience music like that, which you've hmm. never heard before um, in, in that way, really. Hmm. Um, now, um, in a moment, we'll introduce today's book, uh, which takes us into the world of two women, a brilliant Scottish writer, an incredible American musician and the blues. Um, but <laughs> first, I have three questions that I give all songbook guests. Are you ready for them? I, I am, yeah. Okay. So who was the first musical artist that you loved? 
Um, I think I think Johann Sebastian Bach counts as a musical artist, right? We're not oh, talking absolutely. About, you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, so yeah, he's quite I think good at it, yeah. he, he was all right. Um, I think it has to be Bach. Um, and, you know, going back to my parents' tape collection, uh, which was very broad and it, it included a lot of sort of, you know, socialist protest songs and Planksty and Joan Baez and the Beatles and, and also Mozart symphonies and, and, and Bach's Brandenburg concertos. And for some reason, oh. I decided that, or, or, you know, I was so small, two or three years old, and I would go to sleep with this tape uh, playing. And I had one of those cassette players that would sort of go back to the beginning. It would never stop. <laughs> it would oh, go yeah. back to the beginning. You know how they would sort of yeah. like, turn themselves over or whatever they would do. So um, it would just go round and round of the of Brandenburg concertos. And, and, I, and I distinctly remember the, there's this cadenza, this harpsichord cadenza in the fifth Brandenburg concerto that gets itself into this very sort of gnarly, chromatic uh, tangle and I would wake I would be going to sleep and I would wake up as this kid um, and I would be really scared by this chromaticism you know I'd, I'd, I, Bach kind of does this amazing amazing contrapuntal tangle and then uh, you know lo and behold at the end of the cadenza he resolves it in this most genius way and uh, and I would sort of know everything was going to be all right and I'd be able to go to sleep then oh, <laughs> so that's you know very vivid early memories of um yeah that that, that influential cassette collection yeah. I love the idea that, you know, um, I have this idea in my head that you could have had um, posters of Bach on your wall like I had posters of Milton Harkett. But <laughs> I wish. <laughs> no, we made them. They should have done. Um, who was the first writer on music that you loved? Mm. Um, well, this you know, this was a really tricky question. I'm not going to go back quite so far. I'm sure there's 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 music books that were influential. But I, I'm going to mention, a. Um, I ended up going to do my undergraduate studies in Montreal. And there I became very good friends with a, a writer called Sean Michaels, who wrote a fantastic novel about um, Leon Theremin, 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 the guy oh, who yeah. invented the theremin. The, the book is called Us Conductor. And it's just a beautiful fictional account, but based on uh, Theremin's life as, a, as an inventor and a spy. Uh, in New York history it's it's a romp with cameos from all the great composers of the day it's fantastic but but Sean um in 2003 had established this blog uh, you know in the early days of blogs and um he also would embed mp3s which was very radical and very <laughs> newfangled thing to put mp3s in embedded into blog posts and what I loved about Sean's way of writing about music which I think really expanded my mind um, and and made me think differently about what's possible was that he would respond really creatively to each song that he was always he was putting up pop songs he'd put up a new song um and then he would he would maybe write a little short story about it or inspired by it or or a little kind of poetic response so it wasn't I don't know yeah some of it was criticism um straight up but it merged into very personal responses very um fanciful, whimsical. He's got a lovely sort of whimsical uh, imagination, does Sean. And I like that he wasn't being strict or technical or well-behaved or pompous. He was he was being very genuine and true to himself uh, and his creative mind. And um, in a way, I, I think it connects with the book we're going to talk about today that, uh, mm. uh, because um, there is that sort of playfulness in writing about music which I think doesn't happen enough and and uh to, to to read somebody who sort of gives permission to do that is really inspiring oh I will check him out um so mm. fantastic um so what was the first music book you loved you <laughs> mentioned that already so I guess it's the Leon Theremin one I mean if we're going really early are we talking about kids books there was a book called the musical life of Gustav Moll 
Oh, amazing. Um, you know, uh, the writer Catherine Merrick, I think, um, which is interesting. Yeah, I was, again, really small, but um, I've come back to it, buying it as presents for, for, for friends who have had kids recently. Um, and it is still lovely. It came with a little cassette tape that I would, you know, you listen to as you read the book. That's the honest answer of musical life of Gustav Moore. Oh, that's great. And now on to today's book, which I first encountered only when it was reissued um, in early 2021, but it was originally published in 1997. It is written about a woman who was orphaned at the age of nine, who sang on street corners and in travelling shows before becoming one of Columbia Records' earliest superstars. It is written by a woman who was adopted in 1961, was brought up, as she says, in a wimpy house in North Glasgow, where she and her brother were the only people she knew who weren't white. She became a fabulous writer, playwright and poet and was the MACA, the Poet Laureate for Scotland, from 2016 to 2021. And Kate, your quote is on the back of this book. You said this about it last year. What a life, what gulpable storytelling. Love that word, gulpable. Exactly the kind of writing about music we need. Personal, ardent, playfully confrontational, questioning and dogmatic. A love song to a complicated idol. And the book is Bessie Smith by Jackie Kay. Here it is. So what did you know of um, Bessie Smith before reading this book? Um, and what did this book teach you about Bessie Smith? Oh, well, um, I suppose I knew very little, if I'm honest. I knew, I knew, you know, I knew her by her voice, um, which after having read this book, I guess I, I realised tells me a lot because of the truth and honesty in her voice. But I, I hadn't really thought thought much about her life story um I didn't know any any of the details about the hardships and the violence and the glamour I suppose that that, that go together um and it's you know let's talk about that uh, uh, definitely but um no I knew very little so I, I came to this book as somebody who who you know appreciated Bessie as Bessie as one of the great voices of the last century but but um really not much more I suppose Jackie I knew better uh, because of her role as the macker in Scotland, um, I'd read a couple of her novels. Um, I didn't know her as a lover of music particularly. So this again was um, coming coming to her with a curiosity for how somebody from outside the sort of, you know, musical criticism world could write a book, a, a music biography. And the way that it was um, brought back into... Um you know, into publication um, last year, you know, it, it reads like a very contemporary book in lots of ways. You know, it fits in mm. with this sort of, um, um, I hate to say trend, but this kind of um, people really enjoy mixtures of memoir and history and all kinds of things. You know, I say this, I'm saying that as somebody who enjoyed writing yeah, like that as well. It, yeah, exactly. And also, you know, there's that element of that in your book. Um, mm. But um the way it kind of brings together Jackie's early life and Bessie's life is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a tr you say it's a trend. I wondered about that, and I was a bit worried about that in writing my book. I probably shouldn't admit to this, but I was, you know, I I did ponder it quite deeply. Um, mm. Whether, I, I, you know, having said that about Sean being playful in the way he writes about music and loving Jackie coming at uh, musical criticism from a from a different angle, being a, a non musician. Um, Part of me worried that I was being encouraged by all the publishers I met about my book. They said, put more of you in it, put more of you in it, mm. put more of yourself, the subjective lens. 
And I worried, is this something that women get told? Because, you know, we're yeah. not allowed to be straight up authorities about music. You know, men write about music in this way quite so much. I'm not sure. Um, and I and I, I think it has to be done. It has to be done well to, 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 to be right. Your book is fantastic, Jude, because you, you are so forthright about the elements of your own story from from the start. I mean, you lead with that absolutely moving, devastating um, account of, of the last time you saw your dad. And I think, you know, I so admire how much you, you just put yourself uh, forward like that and come to the music as your passions. Um, but anyway, I think it's a, it's a tricky line to tread. Um, and um, yes, I, I, I found it. I found it a challenge in writing my book. I think Jackie does it absolutely brilliantly mm. in this um the way she folds in, yeah, as you said, part history, part personal memoir, part social commentary, part poetry, and then she goes off into these very obvious um, flights of fancy, these sort of fictional parts where she just makes up bits of the story that we don't know. And I loved those bits, actually, yeah. because, you know, she's she's not pretending. She puts them in italics. We know that this is where she's this is where she's fictionalizing the story. But part of the tragedy of Bessie Smith is that her um, her terrible husband who was very violent and abusive. Mm. Um, destroyed her legacy basically I mean he destroyed her during her lifetime and after it's just it's just horrendous but um just uh Jackie imagines um this this trunk full of uh Bessie's um you know her her memorabilia Mm. imagines that this lost trunk might just turn up in Scotland and she might just be the person who who opens it and you know what that might might be like as a biographer to un- unearth all these mm. all these letters and and diaries and um yeah I, I wonder whether it's the kind of fictionalization that a lot of biographers would like to do and maybe do but a, li- a little bit more opaquely um Jackie just allows herself to do it as a novelist and a poet and um I I, I thought it worked really really well yeah it's interesting what you're saying about that need for you know the first person in books I have to say I know male music writers who have also been encouraged to put themselves in but um I wonder you know reading Jackie Kay's um you know writing you know her connection her early connection with Bessie Smith was so powerful um Mm. you know she says she finds a soulmate in her from the age of 12 when her father um who is a white Scottish communist um he could have buys her a double album of Bessie Smith for her birthday and she writes she looked so familiar she looked like somebody I already knew in my heart of hearts and um you know it's about how at that particular age um a musician can be a portal to other places or other ideas Mm -hmm. or for her kind of it gives her the first awareness she writes of being black Mm -hmm. and kind of um encountering experiences that are not of her life but of somebody who shares that blackness as she as she writes um you know obviously Kay also you know reflects on songs about racism and the horrors of lynchings that Smith would have heard about when she was growing up and then the bit where um Bessie Smith single-handedly fights off a cohort of the Ku Klux Klan amazing yeah you get you get the sense of the fierceness of this woman and 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 her as a, I think you know this this thing of Bessie being a really complicated icon, and I in, I think it's so important that in writing about music that we love and musicians that we love, we don't pretend that they're squeaky clean. You know, there's been too much of that lionizing that's gone on in the past, and still goes on, frankly, around artists, and which permits all sorts of behavior that is problematic and um, you know abusive of power, basically. Uh, and I, and and Jackie's not doing that in any means here. She's She's presenting Bessie as 
um, as a very complicated person who was the victim of violence, was a victim of racism, certainly, but also was violent herself. Um, the domestic abuse went both ways um, to, towards her lover. And, um, you know, she was she she drank a lot. She, she lived large. She um, made a ton of money. She lost it all. There was there's such highs and lows, I guess, mm. a gift for a biographer. It's a very it's a very juicy tale. But but we get that that truth telling element, which, of course, is as as Jackie Kay keeps writing, is so integral to the blues itself. She's got yes. this lovely. What does she say? Something like, um, you know, the truth of the blues, getting at the whole truth in all its multiplicity. And uh, says the power of the blues is, is is in its circularity because, you know, these these recurring life truths that we might want to get away from. The thing about the blues is they come around not once, not twice. Yeah. But they keep coming around because that's the form of the blues. Yes. And um, and so it's all sort of bound together in the truth of her own uh, life, her own experience as a black person in a very white environment. Um, but also, yeah, looking at this person who was all about was all about contradictions and, and the truth. I love how we find out about the many other female performers um, mm. in that world, um, you know, in the world of the blues and in jazz in the early 20th century. You know, we have Clara Smith, Queen of the Moners, which um, <sighs> I'm sure my son would call me that sometime. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Queen of the Moners, it sounds quite Welsh. Uh, Mamie Smith, um, Ida Cox, and how these women sing of, you know, they sing of men who did them wrong, but they sing, I there's a phrase, um, that um, it's taken from another writer about um, women in jazz and blues, um, Sally Plashkin, anguished desolation, murderous revenge. You know, there's these, uh, it makes me think of folk music. You know, blues is folk music, of course, but kind of things that are generally more connected with a much whiter form of traditional music. Um, yeah. But you also get you know, elements um, in some songs about, you know, homosexuality or queerness, mm. um, you know, and, you know, we've talked about violence and other things as well it's almost a surprise to hear such bold music about such bold subjects in some ways but in other ways this stuff has always been there isn't it it's just you know that it's been suppressed and has to be you know rediscovered yeah absolutely you know this reminds me of um um i i had an amazing time going to cairo a couple of years ago to make a program about egyptian um well, about Arabic music, actually, more broadly, and um, discovered that some of the music that was being sung in the early 20th century by women was far more explicit than could be possible today in some of the lyrics of the songs of those early incredible Arabic uh, voices. Um, we're talking about some of the things that we're talking about now in terms of Bessie Smith and the, and the blues the blues queens um and you know those songs are having to be censored today in in egypt mm. they, they they can't get past the, the the modern censors and and so i guess the my point is it's not necessarily a linear thing um things go forward and things go backwards but yeah you're absolutely right and in terms of why i chose to make my book about music in the 20th century um it's partly the, the sort of amazing musical invention but also the fact that it became possible for women and um you know, um, people of color and uh, people around the world to to make music in ways that they hadn't really been able to before because of the social structures around them. Yeah, um, and of course there were there were women who composed in in previous centuries, but few and far between. It was you know you had to really work hard to get through those social social restrictions. And um, in the twentieth century, it became possible, and there was a sort of explosion of creativity um, because of the the sort of seismic social political changes that were going on everywhere that's what makes it such an amazing century to delve into culturally but also this kind of sort of huge political 
backdrops to the stories, um, which we get in this book with with Bessie Smith as well. You know, it's it's the story of America um, from from the early twentieth century and through the through the depression. She she sort of sang mm. of that time. I mean, it's all there in her songs, sort of dust bowl. Um, you know, real poverty and toughness, but also the glamour. We get that sense of it as well. Um, you know, Ma Rainey is another figure who comes up um, and I think was hugely influential for Bessie Smith, taught her how to be on the road, taught her how to be glamorous and how to live large, taught her how to be a lesbian too, I think, um, and taught her how to party. And so, that you know, the, yeah, these amazing figures come up. And in terms of the gender dynamics, I think, as you said, it's so much depended on what part of the world you were in and, and, and what context was around you. But I, I found it fascinating to read about Bessie and the dynamics of her not just being a woman, but being a black person in an era, mm. era of segregation. Yes, so she, yes. for all her fierceness, she still had to sing in white only contexts, in venues where, you know, the crowd was entirely white and there she was on stage as you said the Ku Klux Klan turns up and she fights them barehanded so it's a very complicated thing and you know there are uncomfortable truths there because part of me thinks why did she sing why did she sing in these all white venues why didn't she refuse and of course that's a ridiculous sort of simplifying of the situation Mm. it wasn't it wasn't that straightforward in fact that's something that came up a lot in the in the book that I wrote it was a sort of confrontation with um applying my sense of feminism um, and values today to past generations. So I have wonderful conversations with the likes of Peggy Seeger um, and Nea Lockwood, uh, Eliane Radig, um, um, Emma Hoytsege, Mariam Gebru, women in their 80s and 90s who mm. in, in their ways all f- navigated extreme situations of sexism. And part of me would be furious when they would be telling me these stories about what they had to endure. Mm. And, you know, for, for me in 2020, 2022, uh, you know, my, my, my uh, response would be that you stand up and you, you speak your mind and you're assertive and forthright and, and all these things. And, and I would get these sorts of knowing looks back from these very wise <laughs> women, uh, which is just to say, you know, it, it, it's not that simple. You know, you can't, yeah. look at, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't necessarily the smartest response at the time or the response that would get me where I needed to go uh, because things were different then. So, you know, it was there was a lot of thinking that I had to do around mm. my sort of, you know, um, borderline millennial approach to these issues. I don't want to call myself a millennial, but yeah, I, I, I think it was, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of that stuff came up. It's interesting though, isn't it, when you interview people that have very different opinions to you in certain subjects. Um, I interviewed... Um, Chrissy Hind a few years ago um, about um, sexual abuse she had um, gone through in the early 70s um, and she has a very different attitude to the way women should approach those things than me very very different but we had a really thoughtful conversation and we came out of it still you know getting on and even though we disagreed mm. which is quite refreshing in this in this day and age um well yeah 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 I mean it reminds me of my own mother actually and she she tells me she was a she, you know she was a primary school teacher in Toronto inner city Toronto in the 70s and the head teacher used to walk by her and and pat her on the bum you know just a just a little pat and you know, I'm going, oh, oh, my God, why didn't you resign? Why didn't you report him? Why didn't you walk out that instant? And she just, you know, it didn't work like that. <laughs> so um, it just, 
and maybe maybe I'll be saying the same thing to my daughter in in however many in 30 yeah. years time um I want to go on to talk about the glamour you were mentioning so um I love um how um this is Kay quoting again the writer Sally Plaxton um who wrote about women in jazz um she wrote about how women clamor to cheer at her gigs um and the women really respond to the glamorous elements of you know musicians like Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey again um I love how Jackie Kay describes Bessie's kind of blues as believable and fanciful at the same time. Grimy life with fancy feathers, poverty mm-hmm. and pain with a horsehair wig. Um, yeah, that glamour is something that isn't talked about much in the way women respond to music. You know, yes, of course, partly Bessie's thing about, you know, terrible men and kind of how women can get through things. And that's very powerful. But that's glamour, excitement, and thrill of, you know, dressing up and... Um, experiencing something that is escapist and multicolored is actually really wonderful isn't it yeah it's it's really interesting and again I had to sort of confront my own um, my own starting point here because part of me really rails against um a dress code you know I've 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 loved going to the opera uh, or to concerts I really hate the idea that I need to dress a certain way in order to do so and I, I you know I've I've definitely in my time turned up in jeans and sandals and trainers um to make a point that this is for anybody and everybody and you don't need to look a certain way in order to be in these places and it's all about the music and and I and I really believe that um and so the idea that that blues is also about the feathers and the furs and the jewelry um, you know, part of me thinks uh, still I, I I I I find it uncomfortable when when people write about what a female performer wears today. This comes up in classical music criticism quite a lot. You know, yes. should we mention the dress? Um, should we mention there's a there's a there's a, an incredible pianist called Yuja Wang, um, who is <laughs> absolutely phenomenal technician at the keyboard, and she wears these very daring dresses, and uh, you know, unavoidably. Critics will write about the fact that the slit is up to, you know, wherever. And it, I find it really uncomfortable, the whole thing. And yet she's choosing to do that. That's important to her. It's um, it's complicated. I think for Bessie Smith and my Rainey, there was also a lot of, um, um, there was a lot uh, to do with um, self-determination and expression mm. and the right to be on stage and the right to own that space and the right to be rich and the right to be glamorous because this was an age when, black people you know that 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 wasn't something that that was um part of how they were supposed to be so it was sort of dressing as resistance as well Mm. as singing these songs as resistance I also love the fact that she had a personalized train a personalized yellow um train uh that she would sort of roam around the country on and you know people would know that Bessie Smith was in town when this yellow train pulled up but again that was also to avoid segregation wasn't it because otherwise she would have to travel on transport and be segregated and so you know what a a great way around it just buy your own rolling stock yeah yeah (laughs) yeah the clash between you know that huge fame and the conditions we know under which that fame was happening is yeah, quite extraordinary you've mm. said already about um you know the imaginative writing you know um mm. italicized in the book um there's a really powerful point at the end of the book where jackie k imagines bessie's death in a car crash mm. in 1937 it almost you know this blurring between fiction and the writer and the artist coming together and you think of this you know, you've been following jackie as this little girl growing up and singing these songs with her friend Gillian, who she's got a bit of a schoolgirl crush on and kind of, you know, thinking of her in different parts of her life. And then that coming together is, you know, quite remarkable. 
Um, you know, you, as somebody who you know broadcasts a lot about music, um, you know, you've obviously just written a book and you've obviously written in the past. Um, you speak about music more than write about it these days. You've obviously been thinking about what music writing is and what it can be. Um, what do you think the best music writing can do? You know, obviously this is a book that's moved you. So I was wondering about that in relation to your mm. feelings about the best music writing. Um, I think the best music writing is probably writing that makes you want desperate to hear the music. Mm. Um, I think ultimately it has to be more about the music than about the words. And that comes back to why you might put yourself into the book. Um, so I, I think it's the best writing about music is, is, is that which is passionate and honest. Um, yeah, I don't think that can be faked. So that's what's got to be behind the best writing. Um, so how would you sum up a book for somebody who hasn't read it before? You know, would you say, obviously, you absolutely love it. Mm, yeah, I think it's um, it's a beautiful read. She really knows what to do with words. There's a real sense of music in it as well, which maybe we haven't um, got across, actually. is she, You know, uh, besides the fact that she's not a writer about music regularly, you really get a sense of Jackie's voice as well. Oh, yeah. Why it affects, you know, why it just grabs you, why it grabs Jackie, but why, you know, it definitely made me um, run to listen to, to all the, the Bessie Smith I could get my hands on. And um, so in, in that sense, it, it absolutely achieves its purpose. Yeah, it's a great primer to her work. So that was Bessie Smith by Jackie Cape, published by Faber. Um, and a fantastic read, we both agree. Now, to finish the podcast, um, I'd love to hear a few recommendations from you, Kate. Firstly, are there any other songbooks that you want to mention that you think are worth us buying and reading? Yeah, oh, there's so many, so many, so many, so many. Um, one writer I really admire who we haven't talked about, who I think got that line of what it is to be a music critic and also be really passionate about your subject area and be part of the community that you're writing about is a guy called Bob Gilmore and he wrote about contemporary music mainly um 20th century uh 21st century contemporary music uh, unfortunately he passed away a few years ago hugely respected in the contemporary music scene because he was absolutely um he was such a champion of many outsider composers he wrote about people like Claude Vivier who was a wonderful outrageous difficult Quebecois composer he wrote about Harry Part, who invented microtonal instruments and was quite an oddball himself. And Bob, um, Bob's books are fantastic, meticulously researched, very, very well written uh, in a way that's readable, which is not something you can take for granted in this territory. And um, he seemed as though he must have been an absolutely lovely man. I, I never had the chance to meet him, but um, the, the, the love and respect towards him from musicians and from other musicologists and critics is sort of universal and I have a huge respect for somebody who is able to tread that line so well because it's a, as we've talked about a really hard one to tread so yeah check mm. out Bob Gilmore wonderful writer um Irish um and very much missed fantastic um and finally we'd like you to recommend a book song for us a mm. song that you love inspired by a work of literature now obviously coming from the world of uh <laughs> classical music or being somebody who's very in the world worlds we should say plural of classical music you know I will give you leave to open that up to what oh, you gosh. what you want yeah I mean the, the lists are endless but I've yes. chosen <laughs> well I I thought I might actually mention a, an example um of one of the composers who I write about in the book um and this is a, a woman called Elsa Maria Peda who was a Danish composer who made the first electronic music in Denmark 
Um, and in the 1950s, she was asked by Danish um, uh, radio to make music for a new version of Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales. And if anybody knows those fairy tales, you'll know that they're not very, well, they're pretty dark. Yeah. Um, pretty brutal. So, so the one that, that, um, that comes to mind here is The Little Mermaid. And she was asked to make music to, to accompany a new radio version of this. And um, she knew instantly what she needed um, as a sound world. So sort of the underwater realm and, and the, the on land realm. And she, she did this with um, all the new technologies she could muster in the 1950s, all this kind of studio technique. But when it came to making the voice of the mermaid herself, she needed to invent something truly new. She had this idea it was going to be a, a combination of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, who's a soprano um, and the serrated edge of a saw was her description. So she invented this new sound using, you know, studio and technology. And I, I love that story. And it is amazing. You can find it on YouTube, actually. Absolutely fantastic. Um, thank you for that. And um, all these tracks um, from the podcast will be added to a playlist that uh, we'll be sharing with you. Um, thank you so much, Kate, for today and for um, sharing your love of um, Bessie Smith um, by Jackie Kay with us. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you, Jude. It's been it's been such a joy to talk to you. And thanks to you for listening. Um, and I do encourage you to read Kate's new book, Sound Within Sound, which is out now. Um, I hope this week's episode will get you out there easing your blues by buying more books and records, please. Um, a new episode of Songbook with another great guest will be coming next week. Thank you so much for listening to Songbook. You can find links to the books mentioned in this episode, as well as our Spotify playlist, in the episode description. Songbook is presented by me, Jude Rogers. It's produced by me and Alice Lloyd. It's edited and mixed by Dan Jones, and our music is by the one and only David Holmes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.